Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Kiri Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is healthy gut, healthy you. I'm so very excited about today's show because I have Dr. Michael Ruscio uh, back on the podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about him if you don't already know him. Dr. Ruscio gives smart, busy people suffering from symptoms like daily bloating, constant fatigue, and unexplained weight gain, simple steps to start living a healthy, enjoyable life again, no matter how long you've been suffering for. Specializing in autoimmune thyroid and digestive disorders. Dr. Ruscio has spoken at the SIBO Symposium, Paleo FX, Ancestral Health Symposium, Sean Croxton's Digestion Sessions, as well as many other international conferences and top health podcasts. Dr. Ruscio, thank you so much for being back on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to chat. So you happen to have a brand new book out there called Healthy Gut, Healthy You. I'm so happy to have you back on our podcast. So this is our third interview, and I'll make sure to dig out those other two interviews, put those links in the podcast notes so listeners can learn, can listen to those. So tell us about this book. What's the main focus of it, and, and how is this book different from the other gut health books out there? Well, good question, and I... I think that this book is significantly different from most of the other books out there, and it's not to denigrate any other books in, in any way. It's just I wanted to write a book that would be a complete manual for the user to apply the litany of different options they have toward improving their gut health. Because I was noticing in the clinic with the patients that I see, they would come in very confused. Should I be low-carb, low-FODMAP? Should I be high-carb? Should I be eating high-fiber? Should I be using probiotics? Should I not be using probiotics? Does the probiotic I'm using contain prebiotics? And are those prebiotics bad for the SIBO that I think I have? Should I be testing for SIBO? Should I be testing for candida? I have SIBO. How should I treat it? I've heard that when you treat SIBO afterward, you should take a prokinetic. Should I be doing that? I've heard if you have SIBO, you should be eating low-FODMAP. Uh, some people say you should be eating low FODMAP forever. Some people say that you don't really need to be eating low FODMAP. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I was finding that people were getting, sometimes, sometimes anyway, they were getting good recommendations, but they were getting them with no context in terms of how to apply them. So I wanted to write a book that had one of the chief goals of giving someone a manual that would walk them through the appropriate application of the available treatment strategies for their gut, and it would do so in an efficient and an effective manner while also not 
making people afraid of food while not going to any crazy extremes and by and, and also not making people feel dependent upon supplement programs. So we, you know, we would use supplements, yes, but we wouldn't build in this dependency. Our, our ultimate goal would be to make someone feel empowered and resilient, not fearful and, and reliant. And that was my chief goal. And my secondary goal was also to amend some of the somewhat erroneous beliefs that have propagated in both conventional and natural medicine around different topics in gut health, like HCL or, or hydrochloric acid supplementation. There are some major errors that have been propagated regarding how to use and when to use hydrochloric acid in both natural and conventional medicine that needed to be amended. And I would also argue another major um, I don't want to say error, but maybe non-optimal recommendation is regarding gluten. Uh, and so I wanted to, as my second focus, update the record on some of these things so that people could have a more evidence-based and pragmatic list of recommendations that were applied in that self-help guide format. And uh, that, and I guess my third goal was to occupy about three years of my life in an excruciatingly difficult process, which this book ended up being, but it's been a labor of love. But uh, you know, really, those, those are my two chief aims with the book. I totally understand the labor of love because, as you know, I've written a book as well, and it just takes all your time, all your commitment. You want to put as much really you know, great information as you can. Right. And, yeah, it's quite the project. So congratulations. That is, Thank you. Uh, uh, that is completed and out there. And so going back to two things, because I'm sure the listeners are like, oh, can you talk a little bit more about that hydrochloric acid? bit can you talk a little bit more about the gluten part can you just briefly kind of go into those two areas sure and let me start with gluten because uh, that's a bit more of a foundational item being dietary so we'll start there now uh, i'm starting to use the term gluten restriction more than i am gluten elimination or gluten free and i think that that deliberate language is important because i've seen a number of patients who have been indoctrinated into eating as if they had celiac disease when they they don't have celiac disease and they also never quantify they have any discernible negative reaction to gluten. Now, why this is important is because a dietary restriction in, in theory doesn't pose much of a problem as long as it doesn't create a risk for a, a nutrient deficiency, I suppose. But the, the dietary restriction of gluten, in, in theory, doesn't really create much of a problem from a nutrient deficiency standpoint, in my opinion, although some of the literature is a little bit debatable on that. But where it does, I think, pose a more innocuous problem that, that hasn't been appreciated is the psychosocial stress that it produces. And, and what I mean by that said more plainly is people withdrawing from social activities because they are fearful of the condiments that will be used at the restaurant or some of the sauces or the way things are cooked. Now, if you have a very high level of gluten reactivity or you are celiac, diagnosed as celiac, then yes, you need to undergo that level of rigor to make sure your diet is truly gluten-free. But there's this large subset known as non-celiac gluten-sensitive that don't need to play by the rigid rules that celiac patients do. And unfortunately, 
this subgroup has been lumped in to play by the same rules as those with celiac. And, and an, an example of this might be if you had a family member with, with very progressed type 2 diabetes, and if they didn't get their blood sugar under control, they, may, they might lose a foot due to diabetic neuropathy. So it's to say that someone with that level of progressed type 2 diabetes uh, should, yes, they, they should be eating a, a fairly careful carb intake. But to say that your blood sugar is 106, which is just over the border, that you should eat that same level of, of uh, dietary restriction regarding carbohydrates would be silly, right? It would be silly to say, okay, you're, you're, you're fairly healthy. There's no real problem here. Your blood sugar is a bit high. Be a little bit careful, and that should be enough. That would be a good recommendation for that scenario, not to conflate their recommendation along with the recommendation of someone that has highly progressed type 2 diabetes. And that's what happens in the, in the gluten-free space. Uh, and, and so I think that is one very freeing piece of information that I, I first noticed was helpful to patients in the clinic, but now that I've, uh, you know, had the, the some of the feedback rolling in from people who've read the book, they found it to be very freeing because if you don't need to practice strict avoidance, then let's not make your life any more difficult than it has to be. And, and just really quick, and I apologize for being a bit long-winded in this answer, but I think it's worth the worth the attention. There was one study performed in Italy that looked at 12,225 patients who are non-celiac gluten sensitive and a group of physicians assessed them both with questionnaire physical examination and lab testing and they tried to really do a, a, a detailed job in figuring out what do the reactions in non-celiac gluten sensitivity look like. Now the symptoms can vary from, from uh, the, the symptoms that can be induced from a gluten reaction can vary from anything digestive all the way through neurological like brain fog and, and fatigue or even skin reactions. So the symptoms can vary, but the, the key piece is that in over 90% of patients, they found a discernible reaction occurred within 24 hours. So what that means is that if you do a gluten elimination and then reintroduction, you will be able to tell fairly, fairly easily if you have a negative reaction to gluten. And so you don't have to worry about gluten necessarily doing this silent damage that won't manifest for years and years. And and that opinion, my opinion there, I, I, you know, some will find controversial and will take issue with, but I think that's a reasonable, pragmatic position to arrive at when you look at the best evidence that we have to date. So so that's, that's the big take-home regarding gluten. And then what's the big take-home about the hydrochloric acid part? Regarding hydrochloric acid, I think there's a over-reliance or, or an over- zealous uh, tend to recommend hydrochloric acid supplementation in natural medicine and juxtapose along with that there is a uh, over recommendation of acid suppressing medication in conventional medicine and the, the truth lies somewhere kind of in the middle um, if you look at the incidence of, of ulcers in the United States it, it's around 6% of the population has ulcers which is arguably often a, a condition of, of high acid production. And if you look at the, the proportion of the population that has diagnosed low stomach acid, it's around 2%. So that, that is a contradiction to the 
hydrochloric acid supplementation heavy recommendations that natural medicine often makes. However, there's a caveat, and that caveat is if you have a history of anemia or you have a diagnosed autoimmune disease, it increases the probability that you may have low or impaired stomach acid production up to as high as 50%. Now, it doesn't guarantee 50%, which is why you have to take this on a case-by-case basis and do some self-experimentation to figure out if you are in that camp or not in that camp. But it may increase risk of low stomach acid production, thus someone benefiting from stomach acid supplementation, to about 50% with a history of anemia and or a history of or or a, a current autoimmune condition. Now, what complicates this is the symptoms of having too much or not enough stomach acid have a high amount of overlap. And so it's difficult to know just from symptoms if you're low or high stomach acid. The best way to, to sort through this is to first start with some dietary interventions that can stop um, symptoms that can look like high or low stomach acid and then reevaluate. And that's what we do in step one of the book. And then in step two, we have you do a cautious trial with, with a reasonable amount of stomach acid supplementation and see how you respond. And if someone improves, they continue. And if they don't improve, they, they no longer need to continue with it. And, and the biggest, most prevalent symptom to look out for is a feeling of stomach burning or acid reflux. But that's not a guarantee that it, that, that means that the... Um, you know, the the acid is a bad idea, but if that symptom does occur, then it definitely means that it's not a good idea. Um, and then also, if someone has any diagnosed or history of ulcers, then I would be very cautious, uh, very cautious with hydrochloric acid supplementation. Fantastic. Thanks so much for explaining all of that for the listeners. Now, in natural medicine, we talk about how everything in the body is connected and how the gut the digestive tract has such deep impacts in multiple different areas of the body and different body systems. And and I think from a listener's perspective, they probably understand that if they have some digestive upset going on, they probably have something out of balance in their gut in some way, shape, or form. But let's talk about some of those other connections, starting with the gut-brain connection. Sure. I mean, this is one that's near and dear to my heart because... When I had some digestive issues myself, maybe the most prominent symptom was brain fog or just a feeling of the inability to think, the inability to articulate words, uh, word search. You're looking for a word, but you can't find it. Um, that, that sort of, um, that sort of, of thing. Uh, and it was, it was very much food reactive in my case. And we do know, and, the, and there is some evidence now being published, uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, we're seeing more and more of this roll out on a, on a weekly basis, that there is a, a gut-brain connection. And this is why perhaps we have some, some, some of the most compelling evidence when we look at meta-analyses, which are high-level scientific analysis uh, or, or analyses of clinical trials showing that, as an example, probiotics have e- efficacy as an antidepressant and as an anti-anxiety agent, likely because they're reducing inflammation in the gut. And we know that the gut and the brain function together. Some evidence shows that the barrier in your gut, if it becomes inflamed and leaky, can make the barrier from the bloodstream to the brain inflamed and leaky. 
And, and this is one uh, major area uh, that leads to this uh, note, this, uh, th- this observation that when you improve your gut health, things like brain fog and mental clarity can improve. And we also know that the gut produces some compounds directly that can lead to brain fog. Most namely, there's one compound known as histamine, which is a mediator of the immune system. And people have probably heard of antihistamine, so the same, same compound is involved in the allergic and, and immune response. And when things are, for lack of a better term, not happy in the gut, you can have an over-release of histamine, which can cause a, an inflammatory immune reaction that can lead to brain fog, fatigue, insomnia, uh, an impaired sense of well-being, anxiety. And excitingly, there, there's definitely this very interesting gut-brain connection. Uh, and and there's also the thyroid gut connection. And I, I believe one of our last uh, interviews may have been on the thyroid gut connection. I, I, I can't recall. Sometimes the interviews kind of blur together. Oh, I understand. Um, yeah, you're right. We did speak a little bit about the thyroid. Okay. So we know that at least some preliminary but interesting evidence shows that the treatment of some gut imbalances, most namely H. pylori, can lead to an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity. We know there's a high association between, a very high association between being hypothyroid and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. And I've seen a number of cases in the clinic wherein we have improved one's gut health. Sometimes that's by remedying SIBO. Sometimes that's for other reasons. But by improving someone's gut health, we have seen someone need up to a a 50% or or cutting in half their dose of thyroid medication while at the same time they were feeling vastly better. And that's probably because we enhanced their absorption of their thyroid medication, thus they needed a lower dose. And as we enhanced their nutrient absorption globally, many of their other symptoms also improved. So there's definitely, in addition to gut brain, there's also this gut thyroid connection. And then what about the gut sleep connection? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of patients that come in and Mm -hmm. one of their chief complaints usually is insomnia. Absolutely. And I think patients are frustrated with insomnia because oftentimes you don't get a lot of um, direct treatment options, right? If someone is, is suggested to be hypothyroid, their endocrinologist or their general practitioner might do a blood test and say, aha, we can identify this, the underlying cause here of this hypothyroidism and, and, and give you some thyroid hormone to help at least with the, the hormonal imbalance component of that. But with sleep, you know, outside of maybe having a sleep study, there's not a lot of analysis that goes into figuring out why you're not sleeping well. And sure, there are some basics there. Exercise some, but not too much, and make sure that you're eating enough and make sure that you're not overly stressed and, and things like that. But it's overlooked that an inflammation in the gut can cause insomnia. And this has been documented in a few different research studies. And in, in fact, in Healthy Gut, Healthy You, there's a great diagram that shows all these different factors that are gut-related how they can lead to impairments in sleep. And that was one of my other, I'd say my probably my two, my, my two or three biggest symptoms when I had gut issues myself, brain fog, insomnia, and fatigue. And it, it can be maddening, but absolutely, I, I routinely see people sleeping better when we improve their gut health, and this is probably due to the inflammation that occurs in the gut, and that inflammation seems to impair the production of melatonin, much of which occurs in the gut. And melatonin is both needed for a healthy gut, 
due to its antioxidant activities, but it also helps you to sleep. And, and this is why we see some trials that administer melatonin supplementally and see improved digestive symptoms and also improved sleep. Now, we can go a step further and we can fix the gut and then therefore restore endogenous or internal melatonin production. But yes, there is definitely a, a gut-sleep connection. And then can you talk next about the gut hormone connection? Because I think a lot of people don't truly appreciate how those are so intimately connected. Mm-hmm. The the area where I've seen the most promising improvements in symptoms has been with female hormone imbalances able to be remedied by improving one's gut health. And, and certainly this is not a panacea, but I, I have seen, I feel like I have this conversation a few times a week now, where a woman comes in with digestive symptoms, gas, bloating, constipation, or diarrhea, or maybe both that oscillate, combined with altered cycle length, heavier light flow, classical uh, premenstrual symptoms. Uh, They may have breast tenderness, uh, abdominal pain that that waxes and wanes uh, throughout their cycle. And, or if they're an older woman, they may be having hot flashes or vaginal dryness or a lack of libido, some of the symptoms that accompany more so the, the you know, perimenopausal transition. And as we improve their gut health, those symptoms improve quite markedly. Uh, and so there's definitely this hormone or this gut-to-hormone connection. However, and, and we take a, a short uh, tangent in the book to cover this, there's also this very interesting female hormone to gut connection. And we know that the gut has both estrogen and progesterone receptors. And part of the reason why women see their digestion change as they go through their cycle and and, uh, things like pain or or altered bowel function occur is because the female hormones do affect function in the bowels. And we take a short tangent in the book and we offer a couple herbal remedies that women can use to help naturally balance their female hormones that does not require any testing. And that can help correct if there is a female hormone imbalance negatively feeding into their gut. And and so there's definitely this kind of bi-directional relationship between the gut and the female hormones. And supporting both of those together, I have seen produce fairly remarkable results. I've also seen in my practice quite often that there is usually an underlying gut infection whenever I have a female patient with some amount of hormonal imbalance. So I'm glad that we're able to sure, cover yeah. that part today. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, you know, very classically in naturopathic medicine, when, when patients come in and they have skin issues, whether it's um, uh, acne or eczema or psori- psoriasis or just some you know, rash of unknown origin or whatnot, that, you know, the first thing that I think of that pops into my mind, and probably for you as well, is like, oh, I wonder what's going on in this patient's gut. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's that, that old natural medicine saying, at least I believe it originated in natural medicine, or maybe it maybe it originated in, in traditional Chinese medicine, and then it was picked up by natural medicine, because some of these things go, go way back, but that the skin is a reflection of the gut. And and that's something I think clinicians, as you're saying, and I agree with completely, have been observing for a while, and we're starting to see some of that published in the research literature. So even those who are the most skeptical are having a hard time refuting that connection now because we're seeing a connection, for example, between celiac disease or even non-celiac disease with things like atopic dermatitis, uh, eczema, 
and as this various skin conditions. So absolutely, um, even I myself, again, you know, sorry to keep bringing up so many of these personal references, but these are things that, that I have dealt with myself, have noticed skin reactions due to certain foods. Uh, I never, when I, when I so I, I had an amoebic infection, and that amoebic infection was definitely causing fatigue, insomnia, and brain fog as the predominant symptoms. I never had skin reactions from that, but I did notice after I healed my gut, um, I, I could have clearer or more acne, you know, more lesion-prone skin, depending on certain foods that I ate. And just by identifying those food triggers, I was really able to get my skin to improve. Now, for some people, their their, their skin issues comes strictly or, or solely from an infection or an imbalance. But irrespective of of the connection, there's definitely a broader connection to the gut. And then the other point I wanted to have you explain is the gut metabolism connection. Because you have a patient in the book, uh, Jen, who lost 50 pounds by addressing uh, yeast overgrowth in her gut. Yeah, Jen Jen did really well. And, and she was one of the first patients that helped me to see how powerfully in some cases, this gut-to-metabolism connection works. And we are starting to see some evidence of this trickle-in in the published literature, most namely regarding SIBO. And it may just be because there's there's a, uh, quite a bit of interest in SIBO right now, and so a lot of the... A lot of the lens of attention is turning in the SIBO direction, but I, I don't want to paint the picture that these things are exclusively going to occur because of SIBO. I think other gut imbalances that are similar to SIBO could probably cause the same thing. And in fact, in Jen's case, I think it was actually candida, or it, it appeared to be candida or fungus that was the, the culprit. And when Jen came in, she was doing everything exceptionally well. In fact, she was referred in by another doctor in town because he said, I don't know what I could add to this picture. She is doing everything perfectly, her sleep, her exercise, her diet. And so when we did a workup, we found a fungal overgrowth in the intestines, and that was the only thing that we changed. She was already doing a low-carb, essentially ketogenic diet. She was practicing, in addition to that, intermittent fasting and she was also exercising and managing her stress, and she really had done a, a good job. But it, it appeared that this fungal overgrowth, which was a bit stubborn in, in her case and, and difficult to clear, but we were able to do so, was negatively impacting her metabolism, and she lost over 50 pounds. I think it was closer to 60 when all was said and done over the course of a year, and she lost probably 20 to 30 quite rapidly, and then there was a slow, steady accruement of additional weight loss over the next six to, to nine months. Now, that's not every case. and I don't want to paint it as a weight loss miracle or what have you, but in to the degree to which your, your gut is imbalanced, there's a chance that that gut imbalance may be negatively contributing to your metabolism, so it's it's definitely something to consider addressing, especially because in Jen's case, after addressing that, she also had clear skin and better sleep. And I believe she also had better mental clarity. So there was, you know, multiple benefits outside of just the weight loss. So, Dr. Rusha, we only have a few minutes left, and there's so much more that we could speak about uh, regarding your new book. So is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Well, I guess the one thing I would leave them with is, if to, to, to first keep in mind that you can have symptoms that are non-digestive in nature, like fatigue or, or brain fog or insomnia or joint pain, that's being caused by a gut problem, even if you don't have gut symptoms. 
And that was, again, that was exactly me. My symptoms were not digestive in nature. They were fatigue, insomnia, and brain fog as probably the, the three most prominent. And they were being caused by a problem in the gut. So you can't have a silent gut that is causing problems and other symptoms of the other systems of the body. So keep that in mind before you go exploring things like adrenal fatigue and, and hypothyroid or metal detox or Lyme. Those things may all be viable, yes. But my recommendation would be to start with the gut and then reevaluate. And I wrote Healthy Gut, Healthy You to be a resource to take you through all of the important interventions for healing your gut. Uh, and, and so it's it's not a one size fits all protocol. It's a protocol that we check in at the end of every step, just like we would check in if you were a patient in the clinic every month, and then we steer the process based upon your response. And so if you're someone with just a mild imbalance, you may only need to go through two of the eight steps, but if you're someone with more progressed imbalances, you may need to go through all eight. But the, the resource adapts to fit your needs and to keep you progressing and improving throughout the, the book protocol. So that would be the one thing I, w- I would mention. I, I put a lot into this. I try to give you everything that you need in one resource, and, and I hope that people will check it out and share the good results that they have with me on social media or, or wherever they want to track me down. So where can they track you down? How can our listeners find out more about <laughs> you, and, and where can they get a copy of your book? Sure. The, the book is available on Amazon. So if you go over to Amazon and just type in Healthy Gut, Healthy You, uh, you can also go to Healthy Gut, Healthy You book com if you wanted to learn a little bit more about the book and i am at drrusho.com which is d-r-r-u-s-c-i-o.com and then you can plug in for more information about the book or our newsletter or our podcast or our videos or, or what have you and, and uh social media so that's kind of the hub the website for everything that uh, i do and that i offer so for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to find all of those links and put them in the podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Ruscio and all of his fantastic resources. Dr. Ruscio, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been another awesome interview. Thank you. It's always been fun. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Michael Ruscio. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.